I think, as I said, uh, introductions are a lost art, and right here in Matthew we get the introduction of a lifetime. We get introduced to Jesus Christ. And as we think about Jesus Christ, this is, in essence, how we are supposed to introduce Him to others, is it not? Let me, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He came to suffer. He came to die in your place, and He, and he came to be raised on the third day. When you think about how you present the gospel and you introduce Christ to other people, is that how you do it? Is that how you do it? Do you, do you introduce Christ that way? Uh, I think this is important because, you know, theology, in a lot of ways, you know, we read our Bibles, we, we want to understand theology, and it can be really heady, uh, particularly when we start talking about atonement and, and propitiation and, and other such things. But what we're really talking about is the fact that Christ came to be our substitute. He came to die, and He came to be raised right? And so, uh, all that to say, um, Jesus came to die for our sins, right? We say, we say that a lot to people. We say, Jesus came to die for my sins. But what are we really saying? What do we mean by that? What does that mean? You know, historically, many have viewed the cross or the atonement of Christ as, as sort of part of His high priestly role. We might even present Him that way. Uh, and that's true, but this role can be viewed from a lot of different angles in the New Testament, right? Uh, we could look at his, his sacrifice, that is, he, he paid the penalty uh, for, of death for us. He, he sacrificed in our place. We could talk about his propitiation, that is, that he, he removed the wrath of God from us. Uh, we could talk about his reconciliation, that is, that he, he overcame our separation from God right? Through His death and everything, we are now reconciled to God. Or His redemption, that He, he redeemed us uh, from the bondage or the enslavement to sin. All of those things could be included in that, but, but it, it goes even further than that because all of that has rippling effects uh, in other places. Uh, these ripple effects include the doctrines of salvation, right? Uh, our calling, our regeneration, our, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, all of it is wrapped together with Christ's atonement for us. And so, all that to say that the, the cross of Christ is the central turning point in history. And for us as believers, it is the linchpin for our faith. It's everything. The cross is everything. And so we ought to try to understand exactly what happened at Calvary. So this week and next, we're going to look at the cross from three different angles. Uh, and my hope is that we will understand and appreciate the significance of the cross in all of its fullness. We're talking about the atonement of Christ, the cross of Christ. Okay? The cross Beloved, and it's, it's kind of ironic that it's an intersection, right? A cross is, is an intersection. It's where two paths cross each other, but it is where the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God intersect with His justice and His holiness and His righteousness and His wrath. It all intersects there at the cross. 
Jesus wasn't the only person to ever be crucified, beloved. Lots of people were crucified in the first century. But Jesus is the only spotless lamb, the sinless son of God to be crucified. That's the significance of the cross. And the implications of that for us this morning are monumental. They're monumental. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we are going to cover eventually verses 21 to 27, but this morning we're only going to cover verse 21. So let's read 21 to 27 just to get our context here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. So turn back to verse 21 with me. Uh, this week and the next two, uh, this week we're going to look at the, the indications of the cross. Um, the following two weeks we'll look at the inclinations against the cross and we will also look at the implications of the cross for discipleship. So this week, the first angle, the indications of the cross, it's all there in verse 21. So we're just going to land there and we're going to park and we're going to look at that. But, but also, this morning, you better have agile fingers because we're going to flip all over the place this morning. So I hope you will follow along with me. Now, let's, let's look at verse 21. It says, from that time. Stop there. What time? Well, we have to figure that chronologically speaking, the cross is about six months away for Jesus. He's, he's tying up some loose ends in his Galilean ministry, and then he's going to work his way down to Jerusalem. Uh, sort of the last six months, he's going to turn inward and begin to teach his disciples and spend a lot more intensive training of them on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. This is a major pivot point in the Gospels. Uh, what is going to take place now is his later Judean ministry. Uh, this, is, this is just a, a turning point and on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised. This is it. The, the rest of the Gospel, in a sense, covers this whole time frame. Uh, as, I, as I said, this is a significant turning point, not only in Matthew's gospel, but if you look at the other gospels, Mark and Luke, uh, it is the significant turning point. Uh, you look at Mark 8 
And in Mark 8, the same conversation takes place, and it follows on the heels of the man who was born blind. And you'll, you'll remember in that situation, I won't take the time to go there this morning, but you'll remember in the situation in Mark that the man uh, was blind and Jesus healed him. It's the only uh, miracle that Jesus actually does in stages. So the man is born blind. Or I, I keep saying born blind for some reason. I, I don't know why. He wasn't born blind. He was blind. Um, but Jesus heals him partially, and he sort of walks around, and he sees people like trees, he says. And then Jesus heals him all the way, and he says, now I see clearly. Following right on that is the confession of Peter, who, who do people say that I am? And Peter's confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he has this conversation, good, now that you know who I am, Pick up your cross and follow me. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to suffer. We're going to die. Okay? So that's the turning point in Mark's gospel. Uh, it's also the turning point in Luke's gospel because in Luke, it begins a section that we call the travelogue. Uh, it's just before Luke's travelogue begins in 951. And 951 of Luke goes all the way to the end of the gospel and essentially covers this whole thing, Jesus teaching his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, it says in 953 of Luke that Jesus' face was proceeding toward Jerusalem. His face is set. He's going. There's nothing that's going to deter him now. He's on his way to suffer and die. Uh, turn back to Matthew. You're still in Matthew. Turn to Matthew 4.17, and I just want to show you one thing here. The same expression is used in 4.17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in 4.17, this is Matthew's presentation of the king, uh, and it's using the same expression and now here in 16.21, same expression, and here now it's, it's Jesus, um, it, from here to the rest of the end of the book, it serves as the introduction for the whole rest of the book. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, He's going to suffer, He's going to die, and He's going to be raised, and that summarizes the entire rest of Matthew. It's a, it's a huge huge turning point you should be aware of. But I want you to notice something in the text. It says that Jesus began to show His disciples. You see that? It doesn't say He began to tell His disciples. He began to show them. Well, show them from where? Well, from the Old Testament. He began to… He understands He's the Messiah. He, under, he sees Himself littered all through the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And he begins to show his disciples from the Scriptures why the Messiah needs to do these things. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, he's going to show them what awaits him in his suffering, in his death, and his resurrection. Not just tell them, but show them. In the parallel account over in, in Mark's Gospel, Mark 8.32, uh, he says that Jesus is now stating the matter plainly. Uh, up to this point, he's only given hints of his death. Uh, you can look back at Matthew 9.15. We'll stay in Matthew for a second here. Matthew 9.15, Jesus 
Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see, there's a, an allusion to his death, but he's not really speaking plainly about it. You look at 1038 as well. And there he said also, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So again, there's this idea that Messiah is going to pick up a cross, he's going to die, and you need to follow him, but it's not, he's not talking openly, teaching about it. It's not plain. It's not clear. It's only illusions at this point. But now, in Matthew 16, he's talking plainly about the fact, openly about the fact, that he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, and he's going to be raised. Very clear. Uh, Matthew 12, 39, the, the allusion to his resurrection, uh, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Okay, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's an allusion to his resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Jesus will be in the belly of the earth, right? He will, he will be raised from that. It's only an illusion. Uh, and look at 16.4. He repeated that. That's the only sign that's going to be given to this generation. It's a sign of the resurrection, but he doesn't even explain it. It's only an illusion to the fact that he's going to be raised. But now his ministry is turning from public to private. He's going to teach and prepare his disciples because he knows what awaits them. He knows that not only is he going to be taken and killed, but he knows what, what awaits them in the future as well. Okay, look back at Matthew 16, 21 with me. Small little word, his disciples, he, he begins to show them that he must, just that word must, put a circle around it, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do, but that word must is in the Greek, it's the, it's the word dei, D-E-I, very small word, but it, it translates to it is necessary. It is necessary. It must happen. It has to take place. It's divinely ordained. It's, this is what we call divine necessity. God has ordained these things to happen. They have to happen. There's no way they cannot happen. It's necessary. And, and four things in the text are necessary, and they all tie to this one verb, this verb day, and then there's four things that are necessary. They all tie to that, okay? And so it is necessary that he go to Jerusalem, one, that he suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that's two. Three, that he be killed, and four, that he be raised up on the third day. And that's what we're looking at this morning, all four of those events. And we're going to try to pick them out from the Scriptures so that we see the necessity of them. Four necessary events need to take place, and they're all tied to that verb. Okay? So the first one, it's plain and simple. It was necessary for him to speak to me. Go to Jerusalem, that's right. Now, 
Of all the synoptics that include this account, Matthew is the only one that points out that he has to go to Jerusalem. Mark and Luke don't, don't say that, but Matthew picked it up. However, if you will look at Luke, uh, I told you we're going to do a lot of flipping around here, so turn over to Luke 13.33. Again, we are just showing the connection here that these things have to take place. They must take place. 1333 to 34, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. So, why did Jesus travel for three days in a row targeting Jerusalem? And he says he has to get to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's a prophet, and a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem, he says. He has to be in Jerusalem. He has to be there because it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Because verse 34, Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets. It has to be. Uh, While you're in Luke, turn to Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. Again, he's teaching the twelve here, and he says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. It had to happen. It had to happen because that's what the Old Testament said would happen. He had to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to turn you one other place, and these are sort of looking back, if you will, but turn to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Uh, We'll back it up a little, maybe verse 23. Acts 4.23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. This is Peter and John. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is Psalm 2 that they're quoting, which is understood to be about the Messiah. And then he says, verse 27, For truly in this city, in this city, 
were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It had to be that he would be in that city, the heart of Israel, where all the leadership, everybody was consolidated. He had to die there. The national leadership had to reject him publicly. So, as they say in real estate, come on, you know it. Location, 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 right? Jesus had to be in Israel, or in Jerusalem. Now, this is also historically, as we said, where the prophets were sent, and they called the nation to repentance, and the nation refused the prophets too, and what did they do to the prophets? They stoned them. They killed them. They beat them to death. They refused them. This is, this is the, the heart of the concentrated political and religious leadership of Israel. For them to reject Jesus basically represents the entire nation rejecting him other than the faithful remnant. They rejected him. So it's necessary for the Messiah to go to Jerusalem because he was a prophet. And that's where prophets go to die. Secondly, it's necessary for him to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, the phrase here, uh, many things, uh, it's emphatic in the sentence. It's moved forward. So it wasn't just that he had to suffer. It was that many things he had to suffer from this group of people, the religious leadership. Now, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes essentially were the groups that members of the Sanhedrin were picked from. This is essentially talking about the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's all one group because there's only one definite article. Notice that? It's not, it's not the scribes or the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. It's just the elders, chief priests, and scribes. It's all one group. It's meant to be taken as a group, and it's largely uh, what we're talking about is the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was uh, made up of a total of 70 men drawn from these groups, and the high priest was their leader. And Jesus is essentially predicting that he's going to go to Jerusalem and that there's going to be a formal trial. These were the, the leaders of the country, and they're going to try him publicly, just like our Supreme Court would try somebody and find them guilty and condemn them. They are the Supreme Court, essentially, of Israel, and they're going to reject him. Now, just a side note, the Sanhedrin at this time um, because Israel was under Roman occupation, they did not have the authority to carry out capital, uh, capital punishment. So even though they might condemn him to death, they can't put him to death. Uh, so that's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why he died crucifixion uh, instead of being stoned. Uh, the Israelites would have stoned him if they could have killed him. But Jesus was killed on a Roman cross. Yet, uh, when you read the Gospels and everybody else, uh, they are still guilty 
of the blood of Christ. But the Messiah had to suffer many things. Uh, Let's just flip to your Old Testament. We read Isaiah uh, 53, and it's good for us to take a look at that again, but let's, let's actually go back a little bit to Isaiah 50 and verse 6, if you will. Now, the interesting thing about this point in Isaiah and what causes a lot of confusion is there's a flipping back between servant Israel and servant Messiah, okay? And so, contextually, you have to figure out where you're at. And in this chapter, we're talking about Messiah's obedience. Where Israel, the servant of God, failed, the servant, the suffering servant of Israel would succeed, okay? And that's the, that's the key to these chapters of uh, Isaiah beginning way back in chapter 40. But here we are in chapter 50, and it's talking about Messiah's obedience. And in verse 6, you see, he says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Ouch. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And then you flip over to Isaiah 53, and we'll just take a look at verses 4 through 8 here. Appreciate I've been reading this. We just want to I just want to emphasize a few things here. Now, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging, we are healed. He took it all for us, beloved. He took it all for us, and we get the benefits. That's what Isaiah is saying. Messiah is going to take all this on Himself and die for His people. But not just die, suffer Okay, we're talking about suffering here. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Okay, get that in your head. Because we're not talking about just death here. We're talking about the excruciating agony and pain that went along with dying. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? They were supposed to get it. Not him. He was innocent, right? He was innocent. He took it all for his people. He suffered. And then look at verses 10 to 12. It says, the Lord was pleased. This is hard language. I mean, we read it, but it's easy for us to just read past it and not understand its significance. God was pleased to crush him. To crush him, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Listen to this. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. It can't possibly be talking about the nation of Israel here. It's talking about an individual. It's talking about the Messiah. As he will bear their iniquities. uh, End of verse 12. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Beloved, our sin, all the ugliness of our sin was placed on him. And that included anguish and suffering and stripes and ridicule and humiliation and in the barbaric nastiness of the cross. He was whipped. He was scourged. He was beaten. His beard was ripped out. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was crushed for our iniquities. He suffered many things. He didn't just die. He had to suffer. You know, the disciples listening to this, I'm trying to imagine what they must have gone through in their heads, right? What is he talking about? And they must have understood him to be talking about Israel. They just, they didn't have the comprehension to understand that he was talking about himself. He was talking all these things about suffering. Psalm 31, Psalm 41, Psalm 69. All these things about suffering. And they're saying, no, 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 that can't be. And he's saying, yeah, that's me. That's me those things are talking about. And even when he told them they didn't really get it until after the resurrection. They didn't really get it. You know, all of it combined, you know, despised, rejected, humiliated, beaten, stricken, smitten, scourged. And, and then blasphemed. And then and then suffering the excruciating agony of the cross. And even the cross, as painful as that was, what did he cry out on the cross? You know, why have you forsaken me? The separation from God the Father must have been the most, the pinnacle of his pain. The agony of the cross. I mean, what Jesus endured, beloved, was bloody. It was bloody. And it was painful beyond imagination. It was humiliating. It was barbaric. And it was all done because of the ugliness of your sin and my sin. Sin is ugly. And Jesus, the wrath of God, had to be poured out on Christ so that it would not be poured out on us. See, Jesus had to suffer, not just die. And the idea of a a suffering as a requirement for God's wrath 
to be satisfied is kind of repugnant to our sophisticated minds. It's kind of hard for us to envision. Yeah, I, I sort of understand the idea of a life in place of a life. But all that ugliness of the cross, whew, that's a hard one for me to grasp. To take an innocent man and to do that to him, that's a hard one to get your arms around, beloved. See, the atonement was more than just a life in exchange for a life. It was Jesus receiving the punishment, the stroke that was due us for our sins. And that's why we call it substitutionary. He was our substitute. He was our stand-in. He took what we deserved. Now think about that. If you are struggling with any particular sin, the next time you're tempted to do that sin... Think about what Christ had to pay for that sin and see if that doesn't stop you in your tracks. Think about it. Think about what it costs the Son of God for you to be forgiven of that sin. Beloved, that'll change your heart. It'll change your heart. Jesus says it was necessary for the Messiah to go to Jerusalem it is necessary for him to suffer many things and it's necessary for him to be killed. Now, as Pastor David has pointed out, Jesus knew he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, and that Messiah's mission was to seek and save that which was lost. And that meant being killed being killed on behalf of his people. As we said earlier, Jesus has only alluded to it up to this point, but now he's talking plainly. He's saying, I'm going to die. And he repeats it several times through the end of the Gospels. And you know, there are many predictions of the need for Christ to die in the Old Testament, and I can't cover them all, but we'll just look at a few I won't take you there again, but Isaiah 53, 12, it says that he poured out himself to death. He poured out himself to death. Speaking of the Messiah. I'll turn you over to Daniel chapter 9. Turn back in your Old Testament there to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. It says, Then after 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be a war, desolations are determined. So, Messiah will be cut off. Uh, in Daniel's prophecy uh, about the restoration of Israel here, the angel Gabriel tells him basically that after 62, and we're talking prophetic weeks here, after 62 prophetic weeks, and a prophetic week is seven years. So, 62 times seven is what we're talking about here. Uh, 62 prophetic weeks, Messiah would be cut off. 
And uh, the point that he's talking about is from the decree to restore the temple to the time of Messiah's arrival would be 62 prophetic weeks. And so that's uh, 434 years. I have to look at it because I'm terrible at math in my head. (laughs) So 49 uh, years, uh, seven prophetic weeks to rebuild Jerusalem it took, so 49 years to rebuild the temple, uh, and 62 prophetic weeks until the killing of Messiah, 434 years. Uh, it's a total, all totaled, 483 years from the decree to rebuild the temple all the way to the time Messiah arrived, the triumphal entry, his killing, his cutting off. Okay, so we're talking uh, 483 years. That's a long time. How long's the U.S. been around? 300 years? So we're talking longer than that. People's memories change. <laughs> Things get forgotten. Ages pass. A whisper in the east. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the point is that Christ's death coincided exactly with the timetable that was predicted 480, 483 years prior to. The Messiah walked into Jerusalem, presented Himself to the nation, and then was cut off. Zechariah 12.10. Uh, just turn to the right there a little bit. I think actually I have this one uh, up there on the screen for you if you don't want to turn. But it says, They will look on Me. And notice the Me there. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. That's the Messiah, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They're going to look at the Messiah whom they killed, and they're going to understand. They're going to understand what they did. Matthew uh, Twenty-one thirty-three. Let's let's turn over there real quick. It's, it's a great parable. The vineyard is obviously speaking of Israel. This is the parable of the vineyard. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. He's, he's I mean. It's pretty plain what he's talking about. This is Israel. There's a wall around Jerusalem, right? There's a vineyard there. Uh, that is the vineyard. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce, as uh, talking about the prophets. He sent the prophets to the nation of Israel. And what did they do? Well, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. They killed the prophets. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus himself, the Christ. He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Wrong. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Jesus was killed outside the city, right? He was crucified outside the city walls. This is just a graphic prediction of the fact that he's going to be killed. Remember John the Baptist, uh, John 1.29? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Even John knew that he was going to be a sacrificial lamb. Interestingly, in John 2, look at even the high priest understands this. John 11, 47 to 53. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Messiah had to die. It was predicted. Leviticus 17.11, I'm going to take you there. Flip all the way back, all the way back. Leviticus Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's the life. A life for a life for the atonement for sin. And compare that to Hebrews 9.22. All the way over to Hebrews 9.22. It says, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we're talking about the life by means of the blood. And the bottom line is that Jesus knew that forgiveness was only possible through the atoning death of a lamb without blemish, right? He knew that. One without sin. An innocent life exchanged for a guilty one. And he also knew that he was that one. He knew it. He knew he had to die on behalf of or in place of his people. You know, we're the guilty ones. He's the innocent one. We're the sinners. We're the ones that need the spotless lamb to die in our place as a substitute. And there's only one who's qualified to do that. Only one spotless, sinless lamb. It's Jesus Christ who takes away the sins of the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There's only one, beloved. And if if you don't embrace that one, there's nothing else for you. 
He's the only one who met all of the qualifications. It's necessary for Messiah to go to Jerusalem. It's necessary for him to suffer many things. It's necessary for him to be killed. And finally, it's necessary for him to be raised on the third day. Again, Jesus showed his disciples these things from the Old Testament. In the same way that he had to to suffer to fulfill prophecy, he also had to be raised in order to fulfill it. Uh, This is a passive verb, by the way. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus says he will raise himself from the dead, but here it says that he will be raised by somebody else, by God. Uh, Just something to take note of. The Father will raise him on the third day. And again, uh, just like the many things was emphatic, the third day is emphatic. It's moved forward uh, for emphasis, and and it's basically uh, emphasizing it's not the fourth day like Lazarus, John 11, 39, right? What happened to Lazarus after four days? He started to decompose, didn't he? He reeked, okay? His body, the flesh began to decay. That's the point, decay. And uh, up to three days, you have up to three days before in Palestine before rapid decay sets in. So if Messiah were raised after the third day, what would that do to the Old Testament Scriptures that predict that his body would not undergo decay? That, that's the issue. It would void the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And by the way, this is just a side note, but this is what's known as inclusive reckoning. When we say three days, we're talking about part of Friday, part of Saturday, and part of Sunday. Three days. It's a Hebrewism. This is just for fun, but apparently there was a common Jewish belief that the soul hovered around the body until after three days in hopes of being reunited with it. So on the fourth day, the soul left the body. Uh, But this is only a rabbinic uh, folklore. This is not uh, biblical. I think the issue is the decay of the body and the related prophecies concerning decay. So let's, let's look at some of these. Three aspects of the resurrection here I want to look at. It was predicted by Christ, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, it was preached by the apostles. And we're just going to look at some passages and then I'll try to tie a knot around this for us, okay? So the resurrection was predicted by Christ. Uh, Let's go back to Matthew and let's look at verse 17. Uh, Chapter 17, I'm sorry. Matthew 17, 23. Back it up to verse 22. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And flip over to chapter 20 and verse 19. The point here is that he just kept making sure they understood that it was the third day. Uh, They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. 
Now look over at John. John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 to 22 real quick. So listen, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the, descent, from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed. They, they understood now. They get it. And then over in John 20 and verse 9, This is after Jesus' death. It says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that He must rise again from the dead. So, Jesus, there's that word again, He must rise. Why must He rise? Well, the resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. I'm going to take you all the way back to Psalm 16. And verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay or corruption. The idea was when he died, when when his body went to Sheol or the underworld to the the place where the dead ones are, that his body would not, while it remained here on earth, when the spirit and the soul were separated, while his body was dead, it would not undergo decay. Psalm 49, 15. And these psalms are attributed to Christ in the New Testament, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. So obviously, um, He would have to be resurrected. Uh, Daniel 12, 2. One of the last books of the Old Testament here. In the, in the Hebrew order of things. Daniel 12, 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's going to be a resurrection, I guess is the point, and Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. The Messiah would be the first one up from the ground. Verse 13 of Daniel 12 as well, But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into, the, into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. There's going to be a resurrection, and Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection, the Messiah. So it was predicted by Christ. 
It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Third, it was preached by the apostles. And the theological implications of the necessity of the resurrection show up all over the place in the apostolic preaching of the cross. And so I just want to look at four or five of those real quick, and then we'll, as I said, put a string around this. Acts 2.22 We'll pick it up in verse 23, I guess. Uh, Skip a little, try to save some time. Uh, This man, that's Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You killed him. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this this day. He's still dead. That's the point. Even David is still dead. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. The apostles understood the necessity of the cross and the resurrection. And if you look a little ahead, verse 33, it is the gateway to the sending of the Spirit. When Christ went into the presence of the Father, after He was raised, He sent the Spirit. Acts 13. And I'm just going to kind of breeze through this. Notice... Uh, Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. They had taken him down from the cross. Verse 29, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. You see that? Uh, Verse 33, God has fulfilled his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. And then verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. You see that? And, and then look at the next verse. Look at verse 38. The Apostle Paul, he's speaking to the Gentiles here, and he says, and he says, therefore. You see that? Therefore. This is a concluding statement. Based on the resurrection of Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises, he says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. 
And, and it's interesting that he's saying forgiveness and freedom from the law are tied to the resurrection of Christ. It's a concluding statement. How necessary was it? How necessary was it for the Messiah to be raised on the third day? Uh, beloved, it's everything. If Christ be not raised, then our faith is worthless. That's what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. He says that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection were according to the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. It's worthless. Because, and there's a reason for it, because if he be not raised, Paul says, you're still in your sins. But we have assured victory over death because of Christ's resurrection, don't we? Turn you to one other, two other places, and then we'll conclude here. Acts 17 and verse 31. This is Paul's message at, at Ath, uh, Mars Hill here. 17:31. he says, uh, well, I'll go back to verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Uh, and what he's saying, listen, judgment is certain. Judgment is coming. God has fixed the day and he has appointed the judge and the judge is the very one who was raised from the dead first. And you want proof of the fact that God's going to judge the world? Here's your proof. He raised Christ from the dead. And that means when you look forward to the end times, everybody's going to be raised. Some to eternal life, others to judgment and death. Everybody will be raised. Everybody will be resurrected. Everybody will get a new body. Some will get to enjoy glory with God. Others will be raised and put into a body just to suffer eternal, eternal hell and wrath. That's a, that's a hard, hard one to swallow, isn't it? That's a hard one to get our arms around. Being resurrected and put back into a body just to suffer. Oof. That's a hard one, beloved. I'll take you to one other place, uh, just to the right, Romans 10, 19. That's a familiar verse, but I thought, you know, in light of looking at the resurrection and the necessity of it, let's just think about this for a minute. Resurrection 10, I'm sorry, did I just say resurrection 10? <laughs> Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are grammatical equals. 
It's not just that you have to confess Jesus with your mouth. You've got to believe something, beloved. And what is it you have to believe? You have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. Was it necessary for Messiah to be raised? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most significantly, the reasons why the fulfillment of Scripture and the sending of the Holy Spirit, it provided the means for our forgiveness and our justification, our victory over death, and it furnished the proof that judgment is certainly coming. And it is part of the faith proposition that we have to believe. It's not just that Jesus died for us, it's that he was raised for us too. And it's a hope for believers. You know, this, I was going to try to tackle a little bit more this week, and I thought, you know what, this one verse, it's the linchpin of the entire book of Matthew, it's the linchpin of the entire Bible. Listen to what Mark Dever said. I, I, I put this quote up here for you. It says, By his death on the cross, Christ has become the lamb that was slain for us, our Redeemer, the one who has made peace between us and God, who has taken our guilt on himself, who has conquered our most deadly enemy, and has assuaged the well-deserved wrath of God. Amen? Amen. I like Spurgeon. He says this, Leave out the cross and you have killed the religion of Jesus. Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It's the heart of it. It's the heart of it. Beloved, it was necessary for Messiah to go to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the religious leadership, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. Christ faced suffering and death in order that we might live. I beg of you, I beg of you, don't reject what God is offering to you. Don't walk out of here and, and reject what God is offering to you and his, his beloved Son. Understand and embrace the truth of the cross. You know, on the, on the one hand, the atonement is, is really hard to understand. On the other hand, it's really easy. Sin equals what? Death. Christ died for our sins in our place, right? And in Christ, by faith, we have life and hope. It's not that hard to understand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our sinless substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that he stood in a place where we could not stand, that he died for us in a way that we could never die. Father, what we deserve is eternal wrath and judgment. And what we get is eternal life simply by believing that you have sent 
a substitute for us in the Lord Jesus Christ by personally acknowledging and appropriating His death on our behalf, His suffering on our behalf, His resurrection on our behalf. Our Father, we're so thankful for the gospel this morning because we get life. We get life. Father, please help us to be reminded of these things this week. And as we, as we come now to sing a song, Father, may it be from our hearts. May it be the echo of our faith in Christ. We pray for His sake. Amen.